for that. Haggai chapter number one uh, is where we'll start this evening and look at a few passages of scripture together. Pastor came to us, oh, it was in the middle of the summer while we were taking our break from our Wednesday night programs and things, and he looked at Brother Zach and I and he said, I want you to preach the series like we did, but this time I want you to pick a minor prophet. And we both said, woe is me. Uh, no, just kidding. We love the minor prophets. Uh, there's a lot in them. A lot. Uh, sometimes so much that you would think that you could spend a lot of time. And the Lord's leading led me to Haggai, a book of only two chapters with four preaching messages in them from Haggai and uh, lots of things to look at. And I pray that the Lord will encourage you as he has me as I begin to study this book. And uh, the Bible has so much for us, even when the books are not written to us. It's amazing how we can, if we work and we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and direct us, we can find ourselves in the pages of the Scripture. And yet we come to Haggai into a unique situation, into a unique account of something that is completely unique to the children of Israel and to this remnant and to this time. And if we're just diligent enough, the Holy Spirit can clearly speak to us. We come to Haggai chapter number 1 and verse number 1, and the Bible says, In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, unto Zerubbabel the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people... Say, the time has not come, the time that the house should be built. Now, we're not done reading, but that's Haggai's first message. Short to the point. Makes an emphasis. The people have said something, but it's not what God has said. And God continues on and comes again in verse number 3. It says, and then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for ye, old, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie in waste? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, wage to put into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And this evening I'd like to maybe as a way of introduction into this book and as a way of helping us to see the emphasis on the book, I'd like to just for a few moments preach a message. If you were going to put it a title on it, it'd be simply this, consider your ways. Most of you would agree, and it's been said, if your mama says something once, you pay attention. If your mama repeats yourself, you doubly pay attention. How much more then should we pay attention when God Almighty repeats himself? Clear as can be. No, no concern, no, 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 uh, no, no doubt about it. Three verses and twice he says, consider your ways. And we're going to look in the, in the passage here in Ezra in just a moment to see exactly what's going on here. If you were to just open Haggai and you were just to go to Haggai and you would read this, you'd be like, what in the world is going on? If you're not familiar with the story, we're going to look at it. But I'd invite you to, to pray this evening with me as I'll, I'll pray here in just a moment. And would you ask the Lord to help us that we might do exactly that? That we might consider our ways. We'll take an evaluation, a look at our lives. And then not just be a matter of evaluating, but a matter of being drawn to action. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you this evening, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit power. And God, I pray that the people don't see me, but they see you high, holy, and lifted up. Lord, may they see your message. And Lord, may they know that it comes from you. Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross of Jesus Christ and his blood shed on Calvary. Lord, I'm not worthy to be called into your ministry but, Lord, I thank you that you've given me just a brief opportunity to live for you. And, Lord, may I never take that for granted. Lord, I pray that you would help us now. Go with us. Guide us and direct us. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Would you take your Bibles and go over to Ezra? Keep your place marked here in Haggai. We are coming back. But I'd like to give you some background. How many of you are familiar, you would say, if, if you were teaching a Sunday school class right this minute, if we were to ask you, we were to give you a pop quiz, you feel like you would pass the pop quiz on the background and the story dealing with Haggai. How many would raise your hand and say, I, I feel a little comfortable. Would you raise your hand? Okay. Few. Praise the Lord. That's, that just means that we get to look at it together for a fresh time. Haggai is a prophet that, that is in the time and frame of Ezra. He is a prophet that is prophesying to the returning remnant of the Jews. They've gone through the captivity. They've spent their time in captivity. And now they're coming back. This would be before Nehemiah goes to rebuild the walls. This is when the remnant comes with that, uh, that uh, governor of Zerubbabel. And we see this, if you will, in Ezra chapter number 3. And we'll begin reading in verse number 1. And we're not going to read the whole chapter, but we'll look at various verses just to get a context and understanding. If you will, we're going to set the scene, paint the picture, so we can all come to this passage together with the same point of view. Ezra chapter number 3 and verse number 1, the Bible says, And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood Jeshua, the son of Josedak, that's the same Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak and Haggai, same person, and his brethren and the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of, uh, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his base, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they burnt, offered burnt offerings thereunto, uh, thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the feasts of the tabernacle as written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of the set feasts and of the Lord and they were con- that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. And so we see here in this passage that they have begun to be return to the obedience of the commandments of the Lord concerning the feasts and concerning the offerings and concerning the sacrifice. They've returned to Jerusalem and now they have returned to the practice that they have known that is to be done. But yet God tells us there at the end of that verse that the foundation of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, was not yet laid. God throws that in there. He reminds us, yes, they're, they're going about these things. They're going through the motions of what they're supposed to be doing. But they've forgotten one key important element. May I remind you that when we see the temple of God, we're reminded of the presence of God. And yet they begin to do this, this motion of religious activity. Oh, well-meaning, yes. With right purpose, yes. But they have forgotten the most important thing, God Almighty. And so they come and they have not yet built. We see in verse number 8, it says, Now in the second year of their coming. So they've been there for two years now. We know that it was in the seventh month they came back. And now it's the second year. So it's been over a year since they began the offerings and they began these things. And now it says, And on the second year of their coming of the house of God at Jerusalem, verse number 8, In the second month began Zerubbabel the son of Sheathiel and Jeshua the son of Josedak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upwards to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. So now they've started building the temple. They've started the work. They've started going about it. They've started to begin that process of, of the things. And if we were to continue reading here in verse number 9 through verse number 13, the people begin to rejoice and they begin to weep and they begin to praise God for the fact that His temple is beginning to be restored. They're rejoicing because... It means that the presence of God can dwell with them again and that, that they can once again be with the God that has called them out and the one that has been faithful and have brought them out of that captivity. And then in verse number, chapter number 4, we see something that is all too familiar to the work of God. 
That's adversaries. Can I remember what, can I remind you what Paul said? He said, a great door is open unto me and there are many adversaries. When God's work is going on, there will be adversaries. It is not a but, it is not a however, it is a and there are many adversaries. If you're going to do something for God, if you're going to, uh, to uh, witness to someone, if you're going to pass out a track, Satan's not going to be happy with that. There will be attacks, there will be things that come up and will come there because when God is working, Satan is also working. And in chapter number 4, we see here that there are adversaries. Look at verse number uh, 1. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard of the children of captivity, builded the temple unto the Lord of God, then they came to Zerubbabel. And the first, first they're, they're real kind, they're real nice. Well, if we were to, for sake of time, we're, we're moving along. They come and they say, hey, let us get in on this work. Let us help you. We've come to praise your God. Let us get in on this work and help you. It was obvious that they were not there to help. Zerubbabel tells them, look, we don't need your help. You haven't once served our God and you don't intend to serve our God and so we don't need you. They didn't like that very much. So what did they do? They go run into the king. But what's interesting here is that verse number five, look at what the Bible says. And they said, and they hired counselors against them. To frustrate their purpose, all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even under the reign of Darius, king of Persia. What the Bible is telling us here is that the king that they came back under was Cyrus. They started the work. He's the one that told them to go and build. He's the one that gave them the scripts that says, here's, here's where you can get the material. And they started the work. And the work was to rebuild the temple for God. And here come these counselors, these lawyers, these men of of high stature to frustrate them. It says they frustrated them for all the days. Not just for a, a few period of time, but we find out here in a few moments that they opposed the work for 14 years. Not through one king, not through two kings' reigns, but through and into four different kings' reigns from Cyrus uh, and to um, Artaxerxes and Ahasuerus and then to Darius, they were against the work of God. We see here in verse number 6, it says, And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. He said, I don't have time to fool with that. So then he reigns only for yet a short while, and he dies and passes off the scene. And then you have Artaxerxes, and it says, And in the days of Artaxerxes wrote, uh, Bishlam, and there's all these names here, uh, uh, a new group of people, a new group of oppressors, a new group of adversaries who come and they're writing a letter and they lie. Isn't that like the Satan, the father of lies, to lie against the work of God? And they tell the king, they say, look, king, if you let these people build this temple, they're going to rise up and they're not going to give you what's due yours and they're not going to give you your taxes and they're not going to pay any attention to you. They're going to become a problem. They're going to become a, a nuisance. They're going to become pests. And you don't want that. And so you should just make a decree that they can't build it anymore. And the remnant of people get discouraged. They don't fight it. They don't bother to stand up and say, hey, no, we've been told by King Cyrus we could come. We, 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 have the, we have the letter right here. Instead, they shift gears. They begin to think more about themselves than they do about God. They begin to build their houses. Not just restore their houses. They begin to, to, to make their houses nice and make it a place of, of, of adornment. We'll look back in Haggai in just a moment. And in 14 years goes by, and they do nothing for the work of God. Oh, sure, they kept doing their sacrifices. They kept going through their religious uh, actions. They kept going through those state of mind. They kept going through those processes. They kept going through the motions. But all along, they continued to remember or forget that one key aspect. That without the presence of God, all it is is mundane actions. Chapter number 5, the Bible says, Then the prophets 
Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah, Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, even unto them. And that's where we pick up in Haggai chapter number 1 and verse number 1. And this evening we come to this passage, and I can't help but just to look and see here that, you know, we as Christians, it's been 2,000 years since Christ died. He left us with a work to do. A work that would bring Him glory, may I remind you. Go ye in all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And yet we look at Christians today and we look at ourselves and we take a few moments of evaluation and we're too busy working on our houses and working on our goods and working on our things, going through the religious motions, going through the moments, going and doing the things that we know we're supposed to be doing, saying the things that we're supposed to be saying, all the while never focusing on the presence of God. And this evening I want to ask you this question. I want to challenge you rather, if you will. Is it not time that we consider our ways? If we're going to consider our ways, there's a couple things in this passage I think we see that we're going to have to do. Number one, to consider our ways, we're going to have to consider our perspective. Consider our perspective. Would you look at verse number two with me of Haggai chapter number one as we talk about this idea of considering our perspective The Bible says here, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Their perspective was not on God. It was not on the things of God. They came up to a little opposition. They came up to a little difficulties. They came up to a little bit of inconvenience. And what do they say? Ah, it must not be God's time. It's not the right time. Ah, it's just not easy. It's not comfortable. It's not simple. Sounds like a lot of Christians I know right here being one of them. Man, I meant to give that guy track. It just, he was busy. Man, I I meant to, I meant to, I was, I was going to witness to them and I just, it just, it just wasn't very convenient. You know, I, I, it really would bring God a lot of honor and glory if, if if I took a stand in the workplace, but you know, they might make fun of me. They might ridicule me. They'll treat me different. They might look at me funny. They might, might treat me a little awkwardly. It's time we get our perspective in, in, in line. God says here, he says, he says, these people say, the time has not yet come. The, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Oh, it's obviously not t- God's timing. How many times have we ever done that, Brother Zach, where something doesn't work out? We knew the Lord had placed it on our heart. We knew what it was God had come to, given us to do. And it doesn't seem to work out exactly the way we thought it was going to. And what do we say? Oh, it must not be the Lord's will. It must not be the Lord's timing. Nonetheless, He laid it on our heart. He's given us the burden to do it. And by the way, He's given us commands in the Scriptures to do certain things as far as uh, giving the gospel to every creature. Bible tells us that as we go uh, daily and in the house, the, 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 the church in Acts there went about preaching the gospel and proclaiming the Jesus, Jesus Christ. They came up against adversaries. They came up against uh, the work of God being halted and being, being oppressed and being uh, criticized and ridiculed. And they didn't go, must not be the time to, to evangelize the world. Must be not. This isn't the time for us to go into Jerusalem right now. You know what? Jesus just died. It's a little sensitive around here. Let's just wait a little while longer. In fact, they got to a point where they did do that in Jerusalem, right? And he had to say, okay, yes, you've worked to evangelize Jerusalem, but I told you to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts in the world. And yet you go not. We come later in the book of Acts and it says that Jesus, God Almighty came and he scattered them abroad. He caused that oppressor of Nero and those Roman, uh, those Roman Caesars to come up and to, to, to kill the Christians and to oppress the Christians. Why? Not because they had done something bad per se. Not because they were wicked and God hated them. No, because they were disobedient and God had commanded them to do something and it was to go. And yet they stayed. And we see here in this passage that we need to consider our perspective. When we think about that word perspective, it could also be used the word point of view. No wonder 
No wonder the author of Hebrews told us, looking unto Jesus. It's time we get our eyes off of ourselves, off of our um, wonderful things that we have, off of our comfort, off of our desires, and get our eyes back onto the glory of God. Would you look with me at the passage here? Look at what God says uh, just a few verses, uh, uh, verses down in verse number 4. He says, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lying waste? It's almost a little sarcasm in there. Saying, oh, it's not time. Sure, it's not time for you to build the house of God. Why is it not time for you to build the house of God? Because look at you. You're in your comfort home. The word sealed there was a term that gave the idea of, of a house that would have adornment on the inside. In other words, they had wainscoting. <laughs> they had the beauty and the wonderful of it all. They, they had nice board and batten put up. They had everything that was pretty in the house. It, it looked sharp. Mama was an interior designer before interior designing was ever a thing. That house looked nice. If guests were coming over, you wanted to go to that house because it was sharp. They had a home and garden magazine in the desert back then. It was called the, 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 children, of, the children of Israel. Their houses were sealed. In other words, God's saying is, here, you've put a lot of interest and a lot of investment, a lot of time and a lot of work in your own homes for your comfort and for your pleasure, yet my house lies in waste. My, my house lies in waste. Because you've forgotten something, children of Israel. It wasn't about the building. It was about the presence of God. It, it wasn't about the four walls of the temple. It was the fact that they went inside of that temple. Remember, they had a tabernacle for just a little while and God brought them into the land. And when they got into the land, he said, Instead, David, of having a tabernacle, I want you to build me a permanent place where I can dwell with men. And that permanent place inside is going to have a holies of holies. And there, that is the place that my glory will dwell. And that is the place that my presence will dwell. And it wasn't about the four walls. It wasn't about the sacrificing. It was about the presence and the glory of God. And they were too busy worried about their comfort and their own desires to even think about God because their perspective was wrong. It's time we look at the perspective of God and get a good glimpse, a renewed perspective of God. Now, if you're a note taker, please don't get mad at me because we're about to move fast and we're about to look at some verses that I think are going to help us to get a renewed perspective of God. I have them printed right here. So at the end, I'll leave it up here and you can come take a picture of it with your phone. It's time that we get a renewed perspective of God's mercy. We get a renewed perspective of God's mercy. Psalm 25.10, the Bible says, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep His covenants and His testimonies. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us. Oh, that God is rich in mercy. Lamentations 3.22, It is of the Lord's mercies. That we are not consumed because his compassion fail not. We need to get a new renewed perspective of his mercy. We need to get a renewed perspective of his worthiness. 2 Samuel 22, 4. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Psalm 18, 3. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Revelation 4, 1. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. It's time to get a new perspective of his worthiness it's time to get a new perspective of his grace john 1 17 for the law was given by moses but grace and truth came by jesus christ romans 5 20 moreover the law entered that the offense might abound but where sin abounded grace did much more abound ephesians 2 8 for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves it is the gift of god first timothy 1 14 and the grace of our lord was exceeding abundantly abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. It's time to get a new perspective of His grace. It's time to get a new perspective of His glory. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. We were flying just a couple days ago. Flying to Los Angeles. Flying back. 
I don't know how many brother, times Brother Zach and I looked over and we went, man, look at that view. Shows the firmament, the glory of his handiwork. When was the last time you just stopped, looked at the stars and said, God, you are worthy of glory and honor and blessings? We get so busy in our lives and we're staring at taillights and we're staring at the houses looking down the road and we're, and we're looking here and we say, oh, I'm tired of the mountains and I'm tired of living in the desert and I'm tired of living in the city and I'm tired of all these things. We just need to stop and just say, God, praise you for your glory that you show us through the creation that is before us and help us not to forget that we have this glory before us. It's time to get a new perspective of his glory. It's time to get a new perspective of his goodness. Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how great is thy goodness. Mm. Oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. Psalm 107, 8, 15, 21, 31. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for the wonderful works to the children of men. Romans 2, 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth the men, leadeth thee to repentance. It's time to get a new perspective of his goodness. It's time to get a new perspective of his holiness. Isaiah 6, 3. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled of his glory. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he which hath called you holy, uh, which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy... For I am holy. Revelation 4, 8. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. God's holiness hasn't stopped. It's still present. And it always will be. Isn't it amazing that the angels here can stand there and it says all day long, all day long, what do they speak? They say, holy, 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 holy. That's all they can say is the holiness of God. And we get into a church and all we can ever talk about is not the holiness of God. We, we ran from the holiness of God. We're afraid of what the holiness of God might mean for us. We're afraid of what it might mean in our homes and we're afraid of what it might mean. I'm not talking about some... Uh, some idea of these, this is what you have to do and this is what you don't have to do. And I'm talking about the true holiness of God where it brings us to see Him for who He is and that He's righteous and that He's just and that He stands on the throne and yet in His perfect holiness He stends out His blood shed, kneel-pierced hands and says, I love you and I can do both because I'm holy. It's time we get a new renewed perspective of his holiness it's time we get a renewed perspective of his majesty first chronicles 29:11 thine o lord is the is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine thine is the kingdom o lord and thou art exalted as head above all psalm 29:4 the voice of the lord is powerful the voice of the lord is full of majesty psalm 93:1 the lord reigneth he is clothed with majesty the lord is clothed with strength wherewith he hath girded himself the word the world also established that it cannot be moved it's time to get a renewed perspective of his majesty it's time we get a renewed perspective of his love John 3.16 For God so loved the world. Excuse me for a moment. We are so narcissistic that we read the world and the only person we ever think about is ourselves. For God so loved the world. Yes, He loved me. And yes, He loved you. And may I say, if you're here tonight and you don't have assurance of your salvation, this verse is for you. God loved you so much that he would give his only begotten son. But if we're in this room tonight and we know Christ is our Savior and we, we, we say that we have a relationship with him and, and we say that, that we love God, then how can we not love the world and give them a track and tell them that we have something so great for them because we can't be bothered because we're in our sealed houses. We can't be moved. We can't be burdened. Our comfort, oh, it's not the time of the Lord. The timing wasn't right. 
We're so worried about God's love for us that we forget that God loves someone else and He has set us here and left us here to tell others about that love of God. It's time to get a new perspective of the love of God. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. And yet Christians are bickering and fighting and fussing at one another. Look. I have siblings. I understand that siblings fuss and they fight. But if you told me that some of the things that happen in churches, I'm not talking about churches spread abroad. I'm talking about individual assemblies. Is the love of God? I'm sorry. It's laughable. God says we're to love like God loves, as God loves. Hurts the day when I hear Christians say, well, I'll forgive them when they come and ask for forgiveness. Oh, help us. Help us. That's not the love of God. May I remind you God loved you long before you ever came to say, God, forgive me. May I remind you that God loved you long before you ever came into existence. Because before the foundations of the world, he had appointed his son to die on the cross for your and I's sins. God loves us. It's time to get a renewed perspective of love, of God's love. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's time we get a renewed perspective of our love for him. But most importantly, we need to get a renewed perspective of his love for us. What is the love of God calling you to do? What is it pushing you to? What is the love God has for you calling you to do? It's time we get a renewed perspective of his loveliness. Sometimes we say the name of Christ to one another and we just find it burdensome. Oh, there's a work we have to do for God. I have to teach Sunday school today. I have to sing in the choir. I have to serve God. Lord, help us. May I remind you what God, writing about Jesus Christ in that book of Song of Solomon, said about him? He said, His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. Would that Christians would fall in love with Jesus Christ once again. Would that we would look at Christ and think, He's altogether lovely. We need to get a new renewed perspective for his tenderness. Psalm 25, 6. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindness, for they have been of old. Psalm 119, 156. Great are thy tender mercies, O Lord. Quicken me thou according to thy judgments. Would that we'd get a renewed, uh, renewed perspective of his compassion. Psalm 85, 16. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. And here's the last one. Would that we get a renewed perspective of his eternality. Genesis 21, 33, and Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Psalm 92, before the mountains were brought forth. Wherever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. 1 Timothy 1.17, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. It's time we get a renewed perspective. It's time for us to consider our perspective and say, what's my perspective of God? Not only do we see that if we're going to consider our ways, we need to consider our perspective. Secondly, we need to consider the provisions of obedience. Would you look at with me in verse number 5? It says, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, your host, consider your ways. And then in verse 6, he says something that's quite interesting. He says, You have sown and bring in, uh, and bring in little. You eat and you have not enough. You drink and you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. 
Now listen to me very carefully. Because someone is going to misinterpret what I'm saying and say, Brother John believes in prosperity preaching. I am not a prosperity preacher. I do not believe in the prosperity of gospel. So listen to what I'm saying, please. The covenant that God made with Moses was a conditional covenant. If God was going to bless the nation of Israel, it would be dependent upon their obedience. Deuteronomy chapter number 28. That is not the church. We do not obey and serve out of the desire to be blessed. We the church, (laughs) we've already been blessed. We have the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has paid our eternal sin debt on Calvary's cross. And I don't obey him and serve him hoping that he'll help make sure my mortgage is paid and that he'll make sure there's food on the table. I serve him because he's already done more for me than anyone could ever do. And that he saved my rotten sinful soul and made a way for me to have salvation through him. It is time that we consider these provision of obedience not out of a desire to have and give me and what can I get? No, but out of the desire to say, God, forgive me for ever wanting more than what you've already given me. We're so busy and worried about what we're going to have and what we're going to get and whether we're going to have a nice home and, and, and all these things that we can't even get this fact and understanding that, oh... Would that we would just be obedient to him. Oh, that we would just be obedient to him. No wonder Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse number 11. The love of God constraineth me. Paul's saying, I have to give the gospel. I have to preach the gospel. Everywhere I go, I can't help but say and talk to people about the love of God and how God saved them. Why? Not because I fear Him. Not because I fear the judgment. Not because I fear missing out in in heaven. But because God loved me. That He would take someone who would oppress His church and blaspheme His name and, and kill those who loved God because He would take me on that road of Damascus and He would tenderly and lovingly just say, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? May I remind you, there was a time, and yes, for many of us, it might have been at a young age. Sure, you weren't in some wicked, gross sin. You weren't out there, but God saved you from that. Praise the Lord. But for some of us in this room, the love of God has done some mighty things for your life. And we're too busy earning a paycheck, making sure that everything is as up to scale and we have the nicest of the nice and the newest vehicles and we, ha- we have the nicest house we can possibly buy and that we have uh, the ability to go out and do whatever we want to do, wherever we want to go, go on all the trips we want to go, have all the vacations we want to have. time that we consider that there are provisions of obedience see we may not it's amazing how we are so temporally minded when we start hearing about provisions of obedience our minds immediately go to what we will physically tangibly be able to touch and see and yet God doesn't view those things the way we review those things One author put it this way, God does not always define reward the same way we do. We think of God rewarding us for obedience. We usually think of tangible material goods. But God has eternity in mind. He's always had eternity in mind. The Bible and ensuing history are filled with examples of people who obeyed the Lord at great cost to themselves. Scripture's godly men and women often did not appear to reap any earthly rewards for their obedience. Yet, we find their names listed in that great hall of faith as people who are rewarded in heaven. Obedience to the word of God includes obedience to the gospel. When we accept God's offer of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, we are to pronounce his righteousness before all men. It's amazing to me. There's there's a clear principle in the Bible of obedience and blessing. Psalm 1-1, blessed are not they that walketh in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, nor standeth in the way of sinners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. 
Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. What does it go on to say at the end of the verse? But in doing so, thou shalt have good success. James 1.25. It tells us about not being just hearers of the word, but being doers of the word. Would you take your Bibles there to James chapter number uh, chapter number 1, and so that we're not just saying, well, those are Old Testament principles, Brother John. No, it's a New Testament principle we see lived out too. James chapter number 1, verse number 25, and it says, But whosoever, or whoso, looketh into the perfect law of liberty. May I remind you that the word of God that we hold is the perfect law of liberty. We have been freed from sin. And continue therein. That means if we'll read the word and do the word, And we be not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. Notice the last phrase. This man shall be blessed in his deed. And then can I take you to Romans chapter number 8 quickly. And we're almost done. I promise. Romans chapter number 8. And we love to quote this verse. Oh, we love to quote this verse. Romans chapter number 8, verse number 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And we sure do love to emphasize that first part. For we know that all things worketh together for good. And then we kind of skip immediately to the last part. To them that are the called according to His purpose. Because if we're saved, we've been called out of sin. But we forget that sinner part. And we know all things worketh together for good to them that love God. And may I remind you that true love begets obedience. If you can read your Bible and see a clear command from God, you can see something and you're disobedient to it, I am sorry, this is to me as well. It is painful to say we're disobedient. And if we're disobedient, I'm sorry. We don't love God as much as we think we do. We can look at lost souls and we know that we're to go into the highways and the hedges and to preach the gospel. And we can watch them go by as passing souls dying and going to a devil's hell. And we know that we've been commanded to do something. To give the gospel and leave it with the Holy Spirit. And yet what do we do? We disobey. And then we walk through the church doors and say, oh I love God. I love him so much. Well how much do you love him? Well, well, I love him. I'll serve God's people. Do you love him enough that you would pack up everything you have right this minute? Sell it all and go to a foreign country for the gospel mission? Well, God hadn't called me to do that. Do you love him enough that you would pack up everything? Are you surrendered to the fact that God might call? We get this idea, and I hope you don't mind me taking a moment. I shouldn't get on this rabbit trail, but I am, Brother Zach. We get this idea that God is only calling young people. We get this idea that if you've already gone into a workplace, and you've already had kids, and you've already uh, done these things, that God, you know, that's, that's a young man's thing. The calling of God is a young man's thing. Don't limit God. God will call whoever he wants, whenever he wants, to wherever he wants, and he expects obedience. It's time that we consider our provisions of obedience. There's a third thing, a last thing. Not only should we consider our perspective and get a renewed perspective of God, not only should we consider the provisions of obedience and the fact that God has loved us and given us everything we could ever imagine already in him, and we are to be obedient through it, it's time that we consider our purpose. Would you look with me back in the book of Haggai in chapter number 1, in verse number 8? He says to them, he says, Hey, you should be building my house. You're, You're more worried about yourself, and you're more worried about your houses, and you're more worried about all those things. But here's here's the reason why that I would that you would consider building my temple. Verse number 8. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the house and I will take pleasure in it. Here it is. Here's our purpose. 
and I will be glorified. God didn't leave us on this earth for our pleasure and our desire and our glory. The only reason, the only reason, listen to me people, please. The only reason that you and I are able to fill these lungs with air is so that we would bring Him glory. And yet, we're too worried about ourselves to ever consider the majestic, holy, eternal God that gives us the breath to even do anything. And he says to the children of Israel here, you say it's time, it's not time. You say it's not time to build the house of God? I'm going to let you know, everything you have is going to go to waste. Or Zach, I can't help but think of that message we heard. Vanity. Vanity. It's all vanity. It's all going to waste away. It's all going to rot. It's going to be destroyed one day, even if Christ does come, and then what you have still is, is still standing when Christ comes, it not only will not rot, it will burn. And what will you have to show for it? We will stand before that king, as Brother Miller was saying Sunday night, and he will say, show me your work. Want to know why so many Christians are afraid of the second coming of Christ? Because we know we have little to nothing to lay at his feet. We're ashamed. And yet Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God. And we can barely utter the words, Hey, can I tell you that Jesus loves you? And tonight, I'm standing before you because as I'm reading this passage, God looks at me and he says, consider your ways. What's amazing, however, is this. Thank you, Siri. What's amazing here is a wonderful thought. When we look at the word consider, what comes to mind? Thinking, right? To just think about, to ponder on, to, 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 to stew on it for a couple days, to, to, to you know, let it, let it be in our thought processes. It's interesting how even the English language has been so horribly, horribly corrupted. Could I tell you that the word consider here does not mean to just think upon? It doesn't mean to just let it float around in your mind for a couple days. The word consider here means to set down and to get so close to something that you can't help but examine it. It means to fix it. It means to establish it. It means to let it become a permanent fixture. And God says, if we're going to consider our ways... We better let our perspective be because of become of him. We better get a renewed perspective that is set, that he is high and holy and lifted up and majestic and his mercy is good and his goodness is great. His grace is better. If we're going to consider our ways, we need to understand that, yes, there is something that comes with obedience, but that we as the church need to understand that we are obedient because of, not in order to. It's time to fix that in our mind. And then it's time for us that we would say, God, I'm going to fix that the whole reason I'm here in life no, it's not to raise up children. Well, that's a goal and something God has for us to do. That's not our entirety purpose. God desires that he would be glorified in how you raise your kids. Not that you would raise your kids, but that you would, he would be glorified in how you raise your kids. That's a new perspective. God desires that we would consider our ways. 
I think it's time that we stop working on our houses and our goods. And we get back to the work that God has called the church. It's not a building. It's not, it's, it's, it's not a, a social thing. It is a kingdom. God has called his church. Yea, can I say this? God has called Gateway Baptist Church. Every member, if you are on the, the roll and you are a member of Gateway Baptist Church, God has called you. Not just your pastor, not just the staff, not just the Sunday school teachers, not just ministry leaders. He has called every single one of us to do the work that will bring him glory. It's not building the temple. It's giving the gospel. Consider your ways. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me this evening? Oh God, help us. God, help us to look at the things that we have and all the wonderful blessings that you've given us and ask the question, what am I doing with what I have for God? What am I doing with what I have for you? God, who will I come in contact tomorrow who needs the gospel? Lord, help me to consider my ways. Lord, we love you. And we praise you for your dear son. God, we praise you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. And God, as I pray this evening, I pray that you would help me not to be just someone who stands up behind a pulpit and preaches a message. Lord, may my life live this message out every moment of every day until you return or until you call me home. Help us to consider our ways. In Jesus' name we pray.